Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing search for clues to why people get so hooked on this crazy game. I'm Rod Murray, and for the best part of a year and a half, I've been your host on these journeys into the psyche of golfers. But as we announced on the last episode, backup has arrived in the form of one of the best riders in the game, Scotland's John Huggan. Now, technically, this is episode 32 of the show, but in many ways, it's actually episode 1A, because today, Huggy makes his thing about golf debut. Now, before we come to that, there's a bit of housekeeping to do, and if you've only just found us, thanks to Huggy's involvement, a very big welcome to you, and a heads up that there's actually an extensive back catalogue of interviews already in the Thing About Golf archives. Over the last year and a half, we've sat down with everyone from Kari Webb and Peter Lonard to Barnboogle June's owner Richard Sattler, and even Huggy himself on episode nine. That is one not to be missed if you haven't listened to it yet. Now, the easiest way to hear any or all of these past episodes is to subscribe to the show on whatever mobile device you prefer. It's called a subscription, but that's really a misnomer because it is, in fact, free. And thankfully, it's easy to do. You'll find us on the built-in Apple Podcast app on Apple products, and you can get to us through Spotify and Google Podcasts on all the other devices. If you're not super savvy with how all that works, simply navigate to the Golf Australia website at www.golfaustralia.com.au and click the podcast tab. You'll find a page with all the past episodes right there. Uh, You'll find links to all that in the show notes, but if you're really struggling, flick me an email and I'll personally help you to work it out. You can get me at rod at talkinggolf.com, just the one G in Talking Golf. That's rod, R-O-D, at talkinggolf.com and we'll get you set up. Now, on to today's episode, and as you'll hear, it isn't quite as advertised, but there's a very good reason for that, which Huggy explained when I chatted with him to help launch his thing about golf career. Well, we did promise you that uh, John Huggins' first thing about golf as a episode would be Tom Callahan, but this is how the news works, isn't it, Huggy? Of course, uh, Scotland's great hope in men's professional golf at the moment, Robert McIntyre, won his first tournament a week or two after you did the Tom Callahan interview, so we're switching up the batting order because you managed to get some time with him. First things, welcome to you, John Huggins, and secondly, uh, Bob McIntyre, tell us a bit about him. This is a fascinating interview that you've done with him. Uh, he's yeah. I mean, well, the bottom line is he's a he's a hell of a nice lad, uh, Bob McIntyre. Um, he's kind of the Scotland's search for a star golfer has gone on for a while now. Um, we've only had we haven't had a male major winner in this century, and um, we have only had um, three Ryder Cup players in this century as well. Uh, last one being Stephen Gallagher in two thousand and fourteen. So the search for a star has gone on for a while, and and. I think we might have uh, that that very person in McIntyre. I mean, he's come off the <clears throat> the Challenge Tour a couple of years ago, played last year on the European Tour, had a string of high finishes. He was second three times. He was sixth at the Open and uh, didn't win, but it's the only thing he didn't win. But he was Rookie of the Year on the European Tour last year. And now he's won, as you say. Um, but he's and he's only 24. He, he ticked all the boxes as an amateur as well. He won the Scottish Amateur Championship. He lost in the final of the British Amateur Championship, and he played in the Walker Cup um, in Los Angeles, uh, playing Cameron Champ in both singles and emerged unbeaten. He beat them the first day six and four, and then the pair of them halved on the second day. All of which is in the interview. But um, as I say, the bottom line is. 
he's the he's the kind of great white hope as far as Scottish golf is concerned, male golf is concerned, and it's been a while for us. Indeed. It strikes me, Huggy, that good golf resumes aren't that hard to come by up to a certain point of a career. There's lots of them. Lots of amateurs lay claim to perhaps being the next big thing. But certain players have it, and he strikes me as a player who has it. He's different. He does things his own way, but he's clearly comfortable in his own skin. Uh, he's an interesting character golf aside, isn't he? And that feels to me like it's one of the ingredients that the really the very top players have. I think of McElroy, I think of Spieth, Tiger, obviously in his own way. There's something about McIntyre, isn't there? He's doing it his way. That's very true. I mean, he's he's definitely got, as I said, the the the, the it quality that, as you just said, um, star quality, if you like. And as I've pointed out to him more than once, he's already Scotland's greatest ever left-handed golfer, <laughs> which, which admittedly is a very low bar. But not a competitive uh, category, that, is it, Huggy? <laughs> yeah, no, he's already that by a distance. And but as you say, there, there, there's something about him. There, he's terrific in, in, in interviews. He's very comfortable talking to the press, which is unusual for somebody as new to the, the scene as he is. And but, from a uh, tiny town, Huggy, he's from a really small place. Yeah, well, Oban, yeah, it's a ferry port on the kind of western edge of the Scottish Highlands, and there's ferries go out to the islands. It's a beautiful little place, but my goodness, it's a terrible place to get to in terms of <laughs> driving. There's one road in and one road out, and it's a terrible road. If you get stuck behind a lorry, which I did when I went to see him there last year, it takes forever. But um, it's well worth the trip once you're there. It's a beautiful little place. Indeed. We don't want to give away too much of the interview, but I think the thing that I'd like people to listen out for, there's a lot of golf gold in there and a lot of golf nuggets, and there's some good stuff in there. But this upbringing he had that's a bit unusual, not just the remoteness, but his parents have always fostered kids. He's had all these foster brothers and sisters throughout his life. Maybe that's got something to do with it. I know Spieth has a sister with special needs, and I think that's part of his humility is probably not the right term, but you feel like, you know, he's a multimillionaire superstar, but you don't get that sense when you talk to Spieth. They got that same thing from McIntyre. There was some really touching stuff in that passage, wasn't there, without giving too much away? Yeah, he, it's, it's certainly given him a perspective on life that um, that most of the players don't have, not to say that they're bad people, but uh, they haven't seen some of the things or heard some of the things I suspect that, that he has. Um, these kids, as, as I think he says in the interview, he's, they didn't all come from the greatest backgrounds. They'd been some of them had even been abused, that kind of thing. So he, he's seen a side of life that uh, most tour players never get to see. Yeah, the, the, there's very much a bubble around professional golf, isn't there? And that's not mm. what's in that bubble. Huggy, your second interview, but the first one we're publishing. Terrific chat. We will bring Tom Callahan to you, but that's a timeless interview. So there's no rush to get that out there. We wanted to bring this one with Bob McIntyre because it was timely, and I agree with you. I think we might be seeing the birth of one of the, the stars of the next decade and a half, two decades in golf. So I've really enjoyed the interview. I hope the rest of them do. Thanks for joining us for a quick chat before we uh, get underway. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob McIntyre. Okay, Bob, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm sitting here, you're, I'm talking to you as the newest uh, first-time winner on the European Tour. Uh, there's an old kind of myth that you learn more from losing than you do from winning. Is that true in your experience? Um. I'm not sure. I mean, I've I've come very close a couple of times, and to finally get over the line, I think I've learned a lot more um, with this one than um, I have in, a, in the previous ones, especially the way it was done. What's different from winning than it is from losing, apart from the obvious? Um, well, it's just about getting over the line. You've yeah. got to learn. 
you've got to learn how to do that. Um, mm. I mean, I felt like I didn't do anything wrong in the previous times. It just wasn't it wasn't my time to win a golf tournament. And um, this time, obviously, I've changed a few things in my game, including my caddy. Um, so a lot of things have changed for me to, to come to that moment. Um, and no, it was just, uh, I would say it was just about letting it happen rather than forcing it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you about the the, the caddy change, but yet, since you bring it up, um, what uh, what difference has that made? It's been huge. Uh, it's just about for me. It was just about being a hundred percent sure on what what I was trying to do. Um, I had to learn a lot. Greg had to learn a lot, and that's why we were party company. Um, but Mike's come onto the bag and. Uh, We've come close, obviously, at the Scottish. We felt like we had a chance. And then, obviously, the first week in Cyprus, we felt we had a chance. But he was doing all the right things for me. And he was just, even if he wasn't 100% sure, he made it sound like he was. Um, so that I was convinced about the shot I was going to play. What is it that you're actually looking for from a caddy, then? Um, it's just, for me, it's more chat on, on the golf course, I'm being honest with you. It's just about keeping me keep me calm and interested um, and then when I do ask a question it's about being it's about being right of course they're not going to get everything right but it's about being on the ball um, and just being confident in what you're doing and that's huge from Mike I mean, he's, he's very confident as I am hitting the golf shot um, he's as confident in, in what he's doing and trusting me to hit a certain club a certain distance and it's 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 half the battle. Yeah. That, that, I mean, I've done a bit of caddying, um, you know, or bag carrying. I'm not. I wouldn't claim to be a caddy properly in, in big events, but it, it seems to me people ask me about it, and I've always sort of felt that there was three things that a, a good caddy needs to have: um, a good strong back, you know, <laughs> an, an ability to count, and and the really important one is to have a personality that's compatible with the player. You, that seems to confirm what you just said. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly it. Yeah, it's it's what I look for. Is that's why I, I picked Mike was because we, the two of us have got the same kind of um, we call it banter, so kind of mm -hmm. chat. Yeah, um, it's just we, we can bounce off each other, so we're never short of no matter the situation, we're never short of something to talk about. Yeah. Um, so what uh, I mean, the, I listened when when you won your tournament uh, in Cyprus. I listened. You we could hear what you would you guys were saying on the 18th fairway with your second shot. Uh, just kind of run us through that. Just how important that was because he seemed to, as as you just said, he left you with an absolute positive, you know, mindset. If you like that terrible American phrase, but uh, just before you hit the shot, you it was all very positive. It seemed like. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we had 140 um, I think it was 148 to cover the water 155 pin uh, and the further right we went the longer it was to cover the water and I'm obviously in the middle of the fairway and it's the wind was fluctuating from being down straight down and down out the right so the worry was it was a perfect pitching wedge with the wind but if there was no wind and no help ball was going to land right in the middle of the water mm -hmm. so it was I took a few a few looks at the, the wind turbines that were up in the hill behind us 
uh, which which did help me. Uh, so we seen that the wind was straight down, and uh, we just chatted about have we got enough help? If we do have enough help, where can we hit it? And it was just like we could have went straight at the pin. What Mikey told me is we could we can go straight at it. We've got the cover, but to be a hundred percent safe, go a couple of yards left of it, and that's what we done. We didn't have enough club to hopefully reach the back bunker. Mm-hmm. But we we're keeping it. We we're keeping it between the bunker and the pin. So we we're always. I mean, it was just if I if I hit a bad shot, it was still going in the water. But if I hit a good solid shot, it was landing where it where it ended up. So it was just about just about him giving me the the full trust, me trusting like what he's saying, and him trusting the shot I'm going to play. Yeah. So it's basically. It sounds like it's all about the elimination as much as possible of bad possibilities. Yeah, and it's about just. Total positive. I mean, I think one of the last things he said to me was just put a fully committed swing in this. I think that was one of the last words he said to me. So it was just giving me, knowing what I was to do, just blank everything, all the, the end results out and just hit one final good pitching wedge. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the winning feeling like? I mean, you, you, I'm sure you've heard often enough that, uh, you know, everybody felt like you were going to win at some point, but uh, until you do it, there's always that. Is there a wee nagging doubt? I mean, or were you quite happy that you would just keep doing what you were doing, sort of thing? No, it was getting tough. Um, mm. Obviously, when you're in contention, you're thinking, right, let's go and win this week. But when you weren't getting over the line, it was like, right, how do we get over the line? Um, the format for the week was absolutely perfect for me uh, with my style of golf, although. I didn't finish with the, the best total out of four days. It was mm-hmm. I wasn't pushing at some points in the in each round. Well, Friday, Saturday, I kind of took the foot off the gas because it was just about qualifying for each each different day. So um, it wasn't like I was trying to plan for a four round total. I was just trying to get myself to the Sunday and and then have a shootout with everyone else. But yeah. it's I mean it feels unbelievable to finally to get across the line and, and get the monkey off my back. Yeah, you I mean, you'd been a pretty consistent winner, you know, as an amateur, and you'd won, I think you won your second tournament on the MENA Tour after you turned pro. So it's, it's not a new feeling, but uh, it, or was it a new feeling winning at that level? I mean, it's a step up for you, obviously. Yeah, um, winning's always the same feeling. It's, it's happiness, it's excitement, everything that goes with it. But for me, it was a sigh of relief that, I mean, I've watched, I've, I've dreamed of winning the European Tour since I was a, a kid. So to finally get across the line, and it, I mean, it just shows the hard work that's gone into it um, from not just me, but my team since I've turned pro and more importantly, my, my parents and my family that have sacrificed so much for, to give me an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the, the tangible things that's come from, you know, doing so well is, since you turned pro is the, the place where you're sitting right now, I believe you're in your new apartment in, in Oban, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yep. Now, have you learned uh, how to do the laundry, where the dishwasher is? I mean, what's this? <laughs> Aye, so I'm, I'm not bad. Um, I, I'm pretty handy. Obviously, spent the time at university in the States, which made me learn a little bit. Um, how would do the washing, try not shrink the clothes or, or cross-stain the clothes. Uh, dishwasher's a great tool. I must say, <laughs> yeah. but no, it's it's about growing up, and I'm I'm learning every day. 
So it was time to get away from your mother, was it? It was. It's time. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're only 10 minutes up the road. And I say that in uh, the nicest possible way, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, aye, it's, it was time for me to... My two older sisters moved out. Uh, they've got their own places, so I was kind of like, right, it's my time to to move out and, and become more of an adult. So who got your room? Um, we've got two... I've got two foster brothers uh, at home, so they they live with my parents, so they can. I'm sure they'll be fighting over it, Dan and Tom. I think Thomas will win the battle for just now. He'll get the, he'll get my room, which was actually was one of the. It was probably the biggest room in the in the house, so uh, he'll get that. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> tell us a bit more about the, the the foster parenting that your your parents have have done for many years, I believe. I mean, it's it's kind of cliche to think that uh, that you would get some kind of sense of perspective from seeing uh, you know kids in that situation. But is that is that fair to say? Is the cliche true? It is. I mean, you, for me, I mean, I'm travelling the world, um, staying in nice hotels. Um, obviously, if you're doing well, you can make good money. But for me, it's more about the things I can bring back to my family uh, and. Seeing the kids, I mean, we've had a few kids over the over the years, and I mean, it's just appreciating what I had when I was growing up, and the chances that I was given. I mean, not just in golf, but playing different sports and shinty football. I mean, I played every sport that you could you could almost name that you can play in yeah. in the town. And uh, when you see some of the kids coming up, they didn't know how to swim. And, I mean, you you show them life skills that. They would never have gotten if they'd stayed in the stayed in the track they were going, and it's just for me. It's when my golf's not great or my golf's poor. Um, it's stepping back and going, you know what? Your life isn't actually too bad here, Bob. You're mm-hmm. you you've got an opportunity of a lifetime. And, um, my parents are great for for helping others. Uh, these kids are the lucky ones that have got the opportunity to be helped. And there's I mean, there's there's still loads out there that haven't. Haven't been captured by the by the um, the governments to get help. Can, can you share any of the stories that you've come across over the years? Um, I mean, obviously, some of them are abused and neglected kids. But mm. I mean, it's just I'll never forget the time that we took when I played the Dunhill at St Andrews as an amateur. Um, we took the two at the time it was a brother and a sister to the um, to the Fairmont where I got we got put up for the week. Yeah, and I, I'll never forget driving in there. And we'd, they'd just been with us that week. That was the first week they'd arrived with us, and we're driving up to the Fairmont. How I mean, it's absolutely massive. And um, one of them turned around and said, "Wow, it's a castle. We're going to stay in a castle." <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's just—I mean, it, some of the things that I'll remember bring a tear to my. Yeah, I mean, how bad is some of the the treatment that these kids have been through? I mean, be, I'm sure there's varying degrees of it, but uh, I mean, what, what's kind of worst thing you've seen? Uh, I've never—I mean, I've never really seen any. I've never seen anyone get abused or anything. No, no, I mean, just the result of it, you know, just the, how. They Aye, I mean, it's just—I mean, I remember one of the times my mum, my mum. When the kids first arrived, and um, my mum went to give them a hug to say welcome, welcome to the home. This is 
this way you're going to be living and part of our family. And the wee boy kind of backed away, scurried away, obviously thinking oh, yeah. she's she's going to hit me or something. So um, that's it's hard to see that kind of stuff. And I mean, the more they come into the, the more they, they spend time with you, it's, it's, it's just, it's there. They're, they're part of your family. They're loved by you. Um, and even like they would go, I remember them stealing food from the kitchen. <laughs> um, and my mum's like, at the start, my mum was a bit annoyed, like, why are you stealing food and taking it into your room and stuff? But then the more we realised, it was like, right, well, they didn't know when their next meal was going to be, so they're, they're storing food. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is understandable, but they, they come round to, to your way of life. Um, they knew they were going to get fed, um, but then they also knew the, the boundaries that became... This is this is the rules of the house, mm-hmm. and I've got to stick with the rules of the house. So, so have the kids. Now, what, what sort of role have you played in all this? Are you a kind of big brother, or are you a favourite uncle, or how would you define your role? No, no, I've, I'm a brother. So, I mean, it's I call them brothers, brother Thomas and Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be part of my family for the rest of my life. So it's just about getting them into the family as much as we can and um, helping them and guiding them as much as we can to to become I mean essentially they're going to be they're going to be adults so mm-hmm. it's well giving them the best opportunity to, to do what they want to do and I'll be there if they ever need need help and it's the same if I need help I'm sure they'll be there uh, how much are they aware of what you're doing uh, Dan, the youngest one, he's not he's not really aware of what's going on with my, my golf. But Thomas, the oldest one, he's thirteen now, so he knows what I'm doing. I mean they're watching me on the T V and stuff and mm-hmm. Thomas Thomas has got his phone and he messages me, um, good playing today or well done. So he knows what's going on and we take him out golfing. Uh he enjoys golf, so it's about yeah, just try to open his eyes to the world. Mm-hmm. Well, they've not got far to go to the golf course. I mean, I've I've been to Oban to see you. I think it was over a year ago now, and your parents' house is right on the. I think it's the twelfth tee at Glen Crichton. Yep, that's it. So you can basically fall out the front door onto the golf course. <laughs> Aye, that's what I mean. That's what I done as a young boy, and that's what Thomas and Dan do. I mean, even if we're walking the dog at night, they'll normally take a a club, or Thomas will take his his full set of clubs, and we'll go and play four holes. Or, Dan will just take the odd club and he'll hit away. But no, it's about giving them an opportunity to to go and do something that they, I mean, obviously we got them into golf, so they're now starting to enjoy it and realise what it's about. And I think it, learn, it makes them learn respect because of the etiquette of the game. Yeah. Now, I want to talk to you a bit about Glenn Cruton. I mean, I've only had a glimpse of it um, that day I was with you in Oban, but... Uh, it's not your standard, you know, course that you might think would produce a, you know, European Tour champion. For example, it was at four thousand and odd yards, par sixty-two, and it seems like the, there's one or two hills involved in blind shots and all the rest of it. Um, how, how do you describe it when people ask you about it? Yeah, I just, I mean, it's it's short and funky, um, mm. but it takes good golf to score around it. You have. If you hit a white shot, then you will lose a golf ball. It's as simple as that. You're not going to go into the bushes and find it. You're going to just say, right, that one's gone. Um, 
but it's a place where you can. It's so easy to learn learn shots. Uh, you've got a shot shape, which I've got to say I'm probably one of my best assets is shaping the golf ball. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's been a huge, huge part of my development. I still play it as much as I can, and I still enjoy it. So it's no, it's a great course. It's a great test, and, and it doesn't take you too long to play it. Yeah, it's you. So you're a product of your environment to an extent, are you? Yeah, I would. I would say that. Hundred percent. I would say that. And of course, the next time you win the club championship will be the first time. Am I right in saying that? Hundred <laughs> percent right. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. So there must be some good players there, is there? Aye, there is some decent yeah. players. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really got to play the four rounds. Um, oh, but now the, the excuses are coming out. Now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, I would love to have won it, but I think my, that ship sailed and we're <laughs> on to something else. Would they not let you play in it right-handed? Because I think you told me once that you can play off about 15 right-handed, so with a wee bit of practice, you might be able to get down to single figure, would you not? <laughs> I don't think I'd be contending for the championship. Uh, that is, that's a bit above above my right-handed level. Yeah, But uh, do you do that every now and again, just for fun? Um, I'll have the odd hit right-handed. I mean, it's it's from Shintia. Sometimes yeah. go and play a game, have a hit of Shintia or, or whatnot, and just enjoy myself. And the same in the golf course. Now and again, even on tour, not just now, obviously with all the new rules, but before I would, one of the boys would want to hit my one of my left-handed clumps. So mm. we'd have a wee nearest to pin or something, and yeah, just get on with. It. I want to ask you about the Shinty. Um for the non-Scottish listeners to this podcast, I think uh, you're probably going to need to explain just exactly what it's all about before we go any further. No bother. So it's a, it's a Gaelic sport um, on the west and north of Scotland. Uh, it adds the way the best description of what it is, it's a cross between field hockey and the Irish sport of hurling. Um which, I mean, it's it's mainly played in the ground, but you can obviously take full swings like a golf swing. Um, the goals are about three times, as, or easier way of putting the goals, are it's a soccer or football um, goal stood in its post, uh, that kind of height-wise and, mm-hmm. and width. So um, it's a pretty... It's a... Serious contact sport. <laughs> it's a bit rough. Is that what you're trying to say? Ah, uh, it is it's rough. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, it's just. I mean, it's it's almost a it's a community community sport that you kind of brought up in the community. Then you'll play, shouldn't you? So, and you've you've got quite a family <clears throat> excuse me family heritage in in the sport. Have you not? I mean, I'm I've been spent some time looking up your your father, your uncle, and your granddad were all. Pretty damn good at shinty. No, they were. They were. Um, what, what sort of level, if you could equate it to golf, would, would they be at at shinty? The best. Ah, uh, they were at the they were at the top of the they were at the top of the tree mm-hmm. uh, in shinty, and they played. They all played for Scotland, so they see a fifteen man squad, twenty man squad. They were they were in that most years when they were playing at the at the top level. Um, I didn't see my grandpa playing, obviously, but I seen my or my uncle Gordon, but I seen my dad um, playing at the end of his career. 
uh, yeah, they've. I mean, they've they've won almost. Well, they have won every every trophy in in Shinty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sort of the hand-eye coordination that you obviously need in golf is that is that come from your father's ability on this, or your father's family side of the shinty side of it? Um, I'm not sure. My mum's my mum's side of things are, are also sporty people. So mm. um, obviously my dad's side are, are more the shinty and golf uh, side of things. But I would say I would say the shinty has helped me mm-hmm. in my golf. Massively. In what ways? Just about, again, almost short shaping, striking, mm-hmm. striking the ball. Because um, in Shinty, you've got to step into it. You can't hit the ball uh, by falling back. Same in golf, you can't, you can't fall back or you'll, or you'll hit the ground first. So in Shinty, you're always taking almost a step. You take a step in to hit the ball. And that's the way, if you watch my golf swing, it's kind of, it's a big, it's, it's a sway off the ball and then it's the whole body weight shifts um, and it's the same it's the same with hitting a penalty in shinty you take a step back and you plant the front foot and then the whole body goes through it so right. I'd say it's helped my golf and do you play left handed because of the shinty or because you're naturally left handed no I'm right handed at right but I don't think it's even the shinty I think it's just been passed down my family my, my grandpa my papa he uh, he was left-handed. My dad was left-handed at, at golf, um, so I think it's just been passed down, passed down the generations, and that's obviously picking up a golf club and it's left-handed. And we got on with. Are there any? I mean, this is a weird question, maybe, but are there any disadvantages or advantages from being left-handed at golf? I speak as somebody who couldn't make contact swinging left-handed. I'm sure, but um, I mean, everybody talks about the Masters that we were all watching last week that. Augusta National, there are benefits to being left-handed at certain holes, and you know there have been quite a few left-handed winners there in the last what fifteen twenty years. Um, have you yeah. discovered? Is, is there anything to that at all, or is it just complete fantasy? Does it make any difference? Um, I just think it's all, and I mean, there's horses for courses and everything. So, um, I mean, until I see Augusta, I would I don't know what to expect. So. There are obviously golf courses that that suit. I mean, there's golf courses that suit me. Mm-hmm. That but, that, but, but that's just because that, they suit you, not because you're left-handed. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just because it suits your eye or the wind direction suits you. And just the way you. I mean, if I'm if I'm a fader of the golf ball and there's another player that draws the ball, then two it's it's almost two different golf courses because he's got to hit a certain shot over different trouble than I've got to hit. So yeah, yeah. it just it's. I see it horses for courses. The, the one thing that left hand, all the best left-handers have had in common is uh, a great rhythm, and you've certainly got that. Is there, is there something to that just from being left-handed? Because, I mean, I, I have no idea why that would be, but it just seems to me that that is the one common factor in all of them. I, well, I, could, I don't know. It's just something that I've... I've obviously got, but I've not put any thought into it. I don't put any thought into my rhythm. I just go and play golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's probably the best way, right enough. The, le- the less thinking you do, the better, normally. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to touch on your, your amateur days. I mean, you obviously, you, you ticked all the boxes uh, all the way up, you know, boys to youths to full international to Walker Cup uh, and all the rest of it. The, 
How quickly did it become clear that, that you were going to be exceptional at, at golf? Um, th- there was one time I really realised that I could compete or I was on the right tracks to compete and was probably the the Dunhill when I played that as an amateur. Mm-hmm. Um, playing with Lardo de la Riva who'd finished top 15, top 20 in the, the British Open that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made me realise that I can compete out here when I was that age. Uh, obviously not at that moment in time, but I knew that if I kept developing my skills, then it was going to happen. And here we are now. I mean, that, that seems to me surprisingly late. I mean, you'd, you'd been very sick. As I just said, you, you, you won at boys' level, you won at youth's level, you won the Scottish amateur, lost in the final of the amateur, played in the Walker Cup. I mean, that that's a lot of boxes getting ticked there. And why was there still a wee nagging doubt even at that point? No, no. So that was—I mean, I I played in the Dunhill when I was about um, sixteen, I think, I was oh, okay. sixteen or seventeen. So I was still young. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was when I realised I could—I I was on the right tracks. Yeah. Like if I gave myself another couple of years, then I would have been able to. Hopefully, if I developed the same rate I was going at, then I would be at some point playing there, um, and. Obviously, playing Walker Cup—that's the the pinnacle of British amateur golf. That's the once you play in that, there's nothing else other than winning a British amateur. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing else to achieve, and for me, uh, in the amateur game, so that was why I, I turned pro. What What were the highs and lows of your amateur career before we move on from that? Um, highs and lows was obviously winning the. The Scottish Amateur at Muirfield, um, that's got to be the, the ultimate high. The low was losing in the British Amateur final. You do all the work to get to the final and then, bang, one, one I think I got beat two and one and your dreams of playing in the Masters, playing in the Open, playing in everything have been shattered. But now when I look back at it, it was like, right, that was just one golf tournament that you thought was going to change your life when mm-hmm. it was never going to change your life. It was giving you an opportunity of a lifetime to go and see these places, but I mean, I still had a heck of a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah there's still a big jump even from, from Walker Cup level to, to being successful at the pro game. And all the pros, when I mentioned Walker Cups to them, they they always go, well, no one really cares about the Walker Cup on the on the European tour, say. I mean, it's just, you know, because pretty much a very large number of players have come, th- have ticked all those same boxes that we talked about with you on the way up. So once you get to the pro level, I mean, it, it's, it's like it, it never happened. Or I'm, a, I'm a kind of over-egging that theory a bit. No, you're right. I mean, you're amateur... Now you're a professional, you're amateur days to other people, other pros, it doesn't matter. Um, but for yourself and personally, for me, I'm seeing things from my amateur days on players that I've played with, like Colin Morikawa, um, playing the Walker Cup and stuff, and you're, you're seeing him winning majors, and it, it makes you realise, you know what, you're not too far away here. Mm-hmm. So on that side of things, it gives you huge belief. But results-wise, other people aren't going to bother about it. But 
personally, it just gives you your own belief, and that's where I t- I just take as much belief from yeah from amateur days as I can. Yeah, so it's a good foundation, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're being a wee bit modest about your Walker Cup, um, by the way. Um, I don't know if people realise, but you played Cameron Champ, who's since won twice on the PGA Tour. Uh, you played on both days in the singles, and after giving him a right good do in the first day, you halved with him the second day. Um, so stop being so modest. That, that would be my first advice. But uh, so anyway, tell me, tell me about that week and, and the experience you had. And by the way, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was interviewing in his office uh, Martin Slumbers, the head guy at the RNA, and he told me a nice thing about you, which um, you may or may not know, but you were the only member of that team that sent him a thank you letter. Yeah, the RNA after you played in that Walker Cup. So he was he went away quite impressed by that. But, but anyway, I, I digress slightly. But uh, tell me about your week at the Walker Cup. Aye, so um, again, you go out probably a week and a half before the tour before the weekend. So you stay there for a week prior to the start of it. Um, luckily, I got a Walker Cup that was in the US mm-hmm. in LA. I mean, I couldn't have picked a better spot, if I'm being honest. Um, and obviously, we go sightseeing, we do everything. Um, you're practicing, and then you're, it's all a big build-up for the week, for the weekend. And obviously, I was disappointed to miss out in the first, the first day's doubles, uh, me and Matty Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I was a bit disappointed with that, but I'm not picking a team, so. Um, it's, a, it's another decision that's out of my hands. Obviously, they're looking at practice days. That I mean, if you come and look at me on a practice day on the European Tour, you'll be like, how does this guy make a living at the game? <laughs> um, and it's just the way I practice. I don't really... I mean, I'm taking all the notes in my book. It's in my, my memory banks. But when I'm hitting the ball, I mean, it's it's no use most of the time on the practice days. And then it's So it was the same with the Walker Cup. Obviously, they picked it on people that were playing well on the practice days. So I got left out. Um, turned up on the mid, mid-morning. Um, obviously knew I was playing Cameron Champ. And I was like, geez, this guy's meant to hit it miles. Everyone's out. Everyone's raving about him this week. And so I went and watched him for a few holes in him against, I think it was Jack Singbra and Scott Gregory. Mm-hmm. And he was playing with Scottish Effler. And there's a hole at uh, LA Country Club, I think it's 14, par 5. And there's a bunker that's, I mean, I'm going round the side of it. And everyone else, apart from maybe Harry Ellis, is going round the side of this bunker. Yeah. And he has just tonked it over the top of it. I mean, it must <laughs> be about 340 yards to carry the thing. Yeah. And I'm like, right, this is what I'm up against. But again, I was hitting into the green first every most of the time. And I was playing great. The minute it came to it came to competition again, my, my golf game turned up, and mm-hmm. I was playing great. And I managed to beat him six and four the first day, and obviously, then they had a decision to make to play me in the in the doubles. Went out the doubles. Me and Matty Jordan, we got beat by Maverick McNeely and I think it was Doug Gim, mm-hmm. who are again both I think playing on the PGA Tour. So, um, and then I had Cameron Champ again, and 
I must say, he held a good part for the half on, on 18, mm-hmm. the half match. It yeah. yeah, I remember watching that, yeah. So. Yeah, so, I mean, that was going to be, I was hoping it was going to be two out of two against them, but again, it was a great experience. And he's obviously won a couple of times on, on the PGA Tour already. So I know the I know the level of golf I can play at, and it's just about going out there and, and doing it now. Mm-hmm. Now, to get to your, to turn into your pro career, um, it seemed like you were kind of, you went back and forth a wee bit on actually when to turn pro. I mean, I've spoken to Ian Stoddart, your manager, a couple of times about this, and he just kind of laughs and shakes his head about how you were going to go to the European Tour School as an amateur, and then at the very last minute, you decided you were going to have a couple of goes in the MENA Tour, and then I'm going as an amateur, and then suddenly, oh, by the way, I'm turning pro, Ian. So run, run us through that thinking. Yeah, so... I didn't know whether I was ready to turn pro. I thought I might need another year as an amateur. Um, and we'd planned on going to tour school. Everything was set up to go to tour school. Um, I've obviously played the Walker Cup. Was After everything was sorted for going to tour school, I was ready to go. Yeah. And on the build-up to tour school, it was, do we turn pro and play the Dunhill? Or do we stay an amateur and play go to the MENA tour, prepare for tour school, get experience in professional events, turn up to tour school and hopefully get your card or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the intentions up until about a week before I went to the Middle East. Now, what, t- before you go any further, what's the what's the thinking behind going to the tour school as an amateur? It, it seems kind of counterintuitive to me. No, it was just in case. I mean, if I didn't get my tour card, then what you're doing you're just going to wait and invites here and there you've not got a schedule to play to hmm. um, so, so it's a just in case thing then really ah you're in no man's yeah. land yeah um, really and I decided I don't know I just I spoke to my I kept speaking to my, my mum and dad about it Stoddy was kind of left actually outside the circle if I'm being honest at that point it was like mm-hmm. right, this is down to what do we believe is the best move here? And everything was booked to go to the Middle East as an amateur, mm-hmm. um, playing the MENA tour. And then one day I just said, you know what, if I'm going out here, why am I wasting, say, five, six thousand pounds as an amateur when I can't make anything back? Mm-hmm. And that was actually it. I was like, I can go out here and at least I could have a few good weeks, I'll cover my costs for this trip. And it's, it's about learning about making money. Uh, and that's it. I just phoned him up and I go, story, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to go to the Middle East and I'm going to turn pro when I'm out there. Yeah. And, and he was a bit shocked by that. But hey, he kept, he just, he just guides me. Um, whatever I kind of, he just, my decision is the, the final decision, but he tries to, to guide you and he thought it was a good idea. So away we went. And you got off to such a good start too in your first event, did you? Yeah, so uh, obviously, <laughs> I'm, talk- I'm talking about the first round, not the not the end result. All oh, right, the uh, first round was a was a shocker, but I was learning my trade again. I was back. I was being an apprentice. It was about I don't know what a shot five over six over seventy nine seven I think. Yeah. Aye, uh, so it wasn't a good wasn't <laughs> were, a good start. But how were you feeling that night? Not too bad actually, because it could only improve. I mean, I knew the level of golf I was, I was better to be playing at. Aye. And I knew that I didn't play well. I was a bit nervous. Uh, and 
I, I, I turned it around, if I must say. Ah, well, absolutely. I, I was going to come to that, don't worry. But yeah, I just wanted you to get you to talking about the 79 for a minute. Yeah. Aye, that was, that was first round as a pro, nervous. And I just didn't play well. And that was, <laughs> that's all we'll go. Aye, aye. So, uh, but you finished, were you third in the end? Yeah, I missed out on the playoff by a shot. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, if you needed any convincing, that was it, was it? It was yeah, actually, it would be a good thing, actually, the 79 in retrospect. I mean, it's easy to say now, I agree, but, uh, you know, to come third with the 79 on the on the card is pretty damn good. Yeah, it was. I played great that week after that, after the 79. Uh, I went daft on the Sunday and I had a chance of, I think I had a putt on the 18th to get into the playoff, yeah. or would I, would I tied the number that was in, and just fell short, but it gave me the confidence that I needed to to know, right, you're, you're at a level you can play professional golf, and it was it was quite good for my my confidence. Now, I think I'm right in saying um, you won the next week on the Mina Tour, but you went to the, the tour school, the second stage of the tour school, you just scraped through. Uh, do you still kind of wake up in a cold sweat thinking about how one more shot there would have made a, such a difference? Um, no, because it's again, it's it's about hard work and it's about the work that you put into it. It's what you get out of it. Um, and I'm a firm believer, and it's something that my mum and dad have always said to me, or it's a thing that we've said in the family. What's for you won't go by you, and. I mean, I had my dad in the bag for the the two weeks I had at tour school and yeah. uh, he knows my game so he knew what, what I was capable of and obviously I had to shoot a good number on the Sunday of, of second stage. Mm-hmm. But I knew I could do it. I wasn't I wasn't driving it good. Um I took a decision on the on the night before it, on the Sunday before the final round that I was just gonna play with with a slice with my driver. Because mm-hmm. I I couldn't keep it on the I just couldn't hit it straight, so the only way I could get it in the fairway was by slicing it. I hardly missed a fairway, and we, sh- we shot six under, and it got us in the final stage. What did you make of tour school? I went to one tour school many years ago as a as a journalist, obviously, uh, and walked around, and you know, I, I walked around in a kind of cold sweat. I mean, watching these guys, you know, with their whole careers, lives, you know all on the line like that and there was I saw some terrible things I mean people the people got into such awful states I mean they were sweating like pigs I mean they, they, they were just and doing things they wouldn't normally do I mean the pressure was so intense for these guys I mean how did you cope with it or how did you find it I took a, I tried to take a I mean for me I was I can't even remember what age I was 21 mm-hmm. um, so I'm at the start of my career so that week wasn't going to define yeah. mm. my career. And the way I seen it was, right, a lot of these guys are here to kind of continue their career. Or, Aye. Or, it'd be or, harder on the way down than on the way up, I guess, yeah. Yeah, that's the way I try That's the way I looked at it. I goes, I'm here because I'm I'm progressing the way I'm, I'm the way I am. Yeah. And, um, I knew that if I played well, then, we'd get something out of the week. And it's just, I, I try to, I had my dad in the bag again and mm-hmm. uh, we both try to just keep it as relaxed as possible and just go and enjoy ourselves. And that's what, when I do that, I, I normally play well. 
how, how is he as a caddy? Because that, that sort of relationship, the closeness of it can go both either way as a caddy player thing. Yeah, that was his... Uh, he was all right, but that was his last week. <laughs> <laughs> you, he got the bullet after that, did he? Nah, he was he was good. He was he was brilliant in what he done. He, he knows my game more, better than anyone else mm-hmm. uh, on the planet. And I mean, he just he just backed me up. If I needed some some confirmation of a shot, more so on the putting side of things, and he was there, he would read it. And it was a good combination, and it was perfect for what I needed. I could have got a caddy for the two weeks, but I wouldn't have known him. They wouldn't have been able to know my game, and I decided to take my dad, and it was it was the best decision I've made. Yeah, I bet you if you ask him now, he would be more nervous than you. Correct, I was. There was a couple of times where we had to have a, had to have a word with each other, um, <laughs> but that's as far as it went. All right, okay. Can you expand on that a wee bit more? What sort of words? Aye, so <laughs> I remember, I remember of. I hit a shank one of the rounds on um, round the big course at Lamine. Uh, I'm playing with Sebastian Heisel and the par five, I've shanked it and he said something to me and I, I think I said to him, uh, will you shut up and just carry the bag? He said something to me and I just went, will you shut up and just carry that bag? <laughs> so I think I said that a few times that week but he understood. I mean, my ten- tension was high with me, obviously, with the pressure of yeah. of trying to get my challenge tour card or European tour card. So, I mean, he, he was brilliant. Other than other than me having to say that a couple of times, he was trying. He was trying to help me too much. Mm-hmm. He wasn't getting on at me. He was just trying to help me, yeah. overhelp me. Um, but no, he was. He done the job, and here we are today. It's a hard thing, as we touched on earlier, for the for certainly a, a no, an inexperienced caddy to to know what to say and when to say it and when to say nothing. That's the hardest part of caddying, I think. Yeah, especially when you've got a, an emotional attachment, I call it, yeah. uh, like my dad. I mean, he wants the best for me and everything I do. And when he's seen something slipping away, then he's obviously going to say something to try and help you. But he he was good for what we needed. Mm-hmm. But everything you've said you know, so far in the 40 minutes we've been talking um, is indicates just how close your, your family is, your family unit. Um, and that certainly comes across any t- in any interviews you've done and stories I've read about you. So given that, I mean, how hard was it to, to the wee boy from Oban to pick himself up and go off to America to college? How big a decision was that? And how did it, did it, how much benefit did you get from it? No, it was good. Don't give it, when I started, I mean, there was tears. There was, there was snot and tears. Um, leaving and, and being over there at certain times I was struggling uh, with homesick which is, is just normal mm-hmm. when you're that far away from home and you're a, you're a homeboy um, but I had to learn I mean I wasn't going to do it and then my mum said you'll regret this later on down the line and she was right if I didn't do that I'd be sitting regretting it yeah. but it, it made me grow up um, if, if you ever asked my mum a question it would be did he grow up she would say 100% yes uh, I learned how to cook I learned how to clean I learned how to almost I learned how to be an adult like mm-hmm. just spending money on certain things and 
Whereas before you would go, Mum, can I get this? Dad, can I get that? <laughs> Aye. Especially but you being the youngest, were you a bit spoiled? <laughs> I was a little bit, I must say. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit spoiled, but it was just about growing up and, and becoming an adult. So was it as much beneficial as to you as a as a person, as a man or a young man, as it was as a golfer, or how would how would you equate those two? Yeah, it was. It was I'd say fifty fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hugely beneficial for my golf. It was. It was brilliant. I mean, I would tell anyone, if anyone asked me, I've seen a lot of the young Scottish guys going over to the States now and it's it's brilliant to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just about the stand, the level of golf that's out there is phenomenal. I mean, almost every single player goes to college. There's not many that skip college. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the standards, the standards really high and, it's like anything. I've, my game's improved since I've been on the European Tour because I'm playing against better players than I was before. And that's the way you have got to see it going to college. You've got to play against... If you play against someone that's better than you, then you better up your game or he's going to keep beating you. And the worst thing is get beat. So you just keep improving. Was a year enough for you? Um, I done, I'll say I've done three semesters. Right. Okay. So... Um, it was just time. It was just my time to to come home and take the next step and and my development to to get to where I am. And it was I wouldn't change anything that I'd done. If I'm being honest with you, I think I'd done everything pretty well. Obviously, if I stayed, I'd, I'd I really had to have been almost loved in out there, like loving the environment that I was in. And, mm-hmm. And everything, and then you'd probably be playing, trying to play PGA Tour. But I think I've done everything the way. I mean, if someone had said, "Would you do anything differently than you've done to this day now?" I would say, "No, I've done everything." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty the of examples I've... of guys. I mean, Martin Laird, who briefly overtook you as the highest-ranked Scot on the world ranking there a few weeks ago before you won in Cyprus. I mean, he went to, to college over there and he's just stayed. I mean, he's a fully integrated American, uh, judging by his accent, anyway. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that, that that can happen. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that either, obviously, but it wasn't it wasn't for you, it didn't sound like. No, it wasn't. I mean, I'm, again, I'm, I'm a, I love where I'm, I come from. I love my roots. Mm-hmm. Um, as obviously they do, they love where they've come from and stuff, but I was really tied in uh, with my family and stuff here in, in Oban and it's just the way I've been brought up it's with family I've been surrounded by my family my whole life and I felt like moving it's the same as I grow up I mean I'm trying to base home here in Oban um, even no matter what happens with my goal uh, I would love to stay in Oban I was going to ask you about that because it's I mean I've been to Oban um, it's it's a lovely place I would acknowledge that I'd say that to anybody that asks me however it's one hell of a place to get to uh, from just about anywhere um, is it going to be more difficult for you as you as your world expands I mean if you play more and more in America for example to, to actually live in Oban or is it just is that always going to be your base I'm hoping for it to always be my base. I'll have a base if I get to the states. If I get to the level of golf I want to get to, mm-hmm. then I'll have a base in in the US, hopefully. Um, but me and me and Stoddy, my manager, 
we laugh about it all the time. Um, there's an airport at Connell, which is about, I don't know, eight minutes out of town. All right, and, okay. Um, so there's there's certain jets that could land in there, I'm sure. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you better win a few majors before you can do that. <laughs> exactly. But that's, that's what we always laugh about it, and it's something that could become a reality if, if I can manage to achieve something like that. Right, because, I mean, even the flying into Glasgow, which would be the nearest sort of major airport to, to open, I mean, it's still, what is it, two or three hours drive? Yeah, so Gla- <laughs> Glasgow's not bad. Glasgow... I mean, you can do it in an hour and 45 if you're putting it, but uh, it'd be a standard two hours. Yeah, that's assuming you don't get stuck behind a lorry. Aye, exactly. Yeah, around the Loch Lomond side, if you get stuck behind a lorry, it's two hours and 20. Anyway, um, if, kind of moving chronologically here, I want to—I wanted to ask you about the your year on the Challenge Tour. I mean, the Challenge Tour gets a lot of good press. You know, I think... Basically, so people like Brooks Kepka and guys that have come across and done well on the Challenge Tour and used that as a foundation for, for moving up and onwards. I mean, he certainly has, and you have too. But uh, what what did the Challenge Tour offer you, and what benefits did you get from it, do you think? Um, I loved it. Uh, one of the things was that I loved about it was travelling with other boys mm-hmm. um, with a good group of Scottish guys on the, on the tour at the time. Um, the main ones I really travelled with were Ewan Ferguson, Jack McDonald, um, Grant Forrest, Liam Johnson. Mm-hmm. We kind of all buddied in together and um, would share houses and share hotel rooms, share cars. So it would cut the cost down, but it was, again, it was another stepping stone about learning how to budget, mm-hmm. budget, your, budget your golf. I mean, everyone... I was lucky enough to have a few sponsors at the time, um, and it was it was great where we could where we could cut costs, obviously. Uh, but it was a great stepping stone. I I was I took a caddy, or had a few caddies out there when I played, mm-hmm. and it was I was trying to do everything as professional as I could, so that when I came on the European tour, it was like, right, this is no different to what I was doing last year. It's just a step up in standard. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in a previous interview that I've done with you, um, you said that you've never been one to be loath to spend money uh, on things like good caddies, good hotel, good food, you know, right, the, get the right flights, that kind of thing. And you, the way you phrased it was that you see all that as a an investment in yourself, which I think is a great way to put it. Is that still how you feel about it? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I put it. Um, again, if you're flying... Say from, I remember the flight from, we were going from Saudi to the 13th beach. Right, in, in Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, um, and I had all my flights booked. I was meant to be flying economy class, which again, nothing wrong with, but I was arriving on Tuesday, say Tuesday morning I was arriving, um, or I can't remember, was it either Tuesday, Monday night or Tuesday morning? And I meant to be pegging it up Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I doing? I need to get sleep here. I need to be able to lie down so my body's not too sore. So that was, the, I think that was the first time I ever flew business class was I used my air miles um, 
and paid some money mm-hmm. and got business class from Dubai to to Melbourne. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that flight a few times myself, and it's business class. I've done it business class and economy, business class once, and it's the only way to go. Believe me. Yeah. So that, I mean, I've never after that. That was my big learning curve. It was like I have pitched up here, feeling actually not too bad, and there's other guys out here that have, have flown economy and are struggling. Their bodies are sore. Mm-hmm. I was, and from that time on, I'll I'll always invest in myself with flights and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. it seems like a you know, sensible approach. I mean, uh, as you say, you can. Uh, there's no point in arriving in a bit of a state if you're not going to be playing well. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, touching on that, kind of on a tangent to that, I mean, uh, Davy Burns is your, your swing coach. Um, I don't want to disappear too far down a technical, you know, rabbit warren, but... Um, how much does he contribute to your game? I mean, it, your swing looks, you know, I always hate the word natural for a golf swing because there's there's very little natural about golf swings. But uh, what, what's your relationship like with him and what has he brought to your game? Uh, I'd say the relationship between me and Davey now is almost like, almost like a father-son mm-hmm. uh, relationship or a brother, almost like brothers. Um He's brought everything to my game. Obviously, I was I felt like I was getting stuck in the mud a little bit, hence mm-hmm. why I changed coach uh, late on in my amateur career. And then he just brings a different, different I don't know system to or different techniques to the golf mm-hmm. golf game than what I was used to. Uh, he allows me to be natural, um, and he just. We just focus on things that we that he feels and I feel like I need to improve on. It's not we're not changing something for the sake of changing it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like we've learned from mistakes when we've been away, and um, if there's something that I feel like I can't change in my golf swing because it's either a trigger, it gets me going, gets my golf swing started, or you know what? If I don't have that in my golf swing, then I've lost all my natural feel. Mm-hmm. So he works with me on, on that side of things and he allows me to he allows me to play with freedom and swing my golf swing when I got on the golf course. And is he just a full swing guy for you or is he everything? Um he was everything. He was doing um he was doing the swing, mental side, um putting. Uh this year with with I've got Graham Leslie who does my does pattern work with me um, and my stats so like a database golf data lab mm-hmm. he started to help me he just started to help me about five weeks ago six weeks ago right. no more than that I had a poor putt I was struggling with my pattern at the start of this year he came on board and I want to say after the second round at the WGC in Memphis he's come on board um, and he's been a big help with a pattern, just giving me belief. And but Davy's been, Davy obviously guided me. My pattern stroke's been absolutely, has been really fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously last year I putted unbelievably well for the whole season, but it was I was stuck again. I was I was struggling a wee bit with my pattern at the start of the year, and Graham Graham's helped me with that. 
yeah, you've had a, two or three physical issues to deal with as well. I mean, uh, has that been a, something that you've had to fiddle with your swing to, to work around, or is that just you just had to recover and move on? No, so we've changed again. We've had to change change my grip, uh, how I grip the golf club because of my hand injury I had, mm. which was due to me re- repetitive strain on on my golf swing. Right. Um, but we changed that, and it wasn't actually it wasn't too bad a change. Um, but the re- I had to do it because I was going to stay injured and whatnot. But other than that, I mean. Now and again, I get a tight lower back, but that's just all of the travel. Mm-hmm. Just now, with with not being able to see physios, it came to came to head at the Scottish. I was struggling at Wentworth with it, and then it came to head at the Scottish. I had to pull out. Yeah, um, you, you touched very briefly on the, the the mental side of the game there, and and you mentioned um, after in the wake of winning in Cyprus that you'd struggled a bit in lockdown, like like I suspect we all have a bit. I mean. I feel like I'm living Groundhog Day for example, every day at the moment. <laughs> but um, can you expand on that just slightly and, and tell us, you know, basically what you were struggling with? Yes, I was just struggling with um, having a purpose, if you know what I mean. It was, mm-hmm. I was, for the first eight weeks, nine weeks, I was on the peloton, the bike every day or every few days with another guy from, from Oban. Mm-hmm. Um we were competing against each other. We were doing challenges. So we had something to work towards. I was trying to get stronger, lose a bit of weight. Um, so I had a purpose and I was yeah. doing everything for a reason. Once that stopped after nine weeks, I was like, right, I kind of took a wee bit of time off again. And I just I started getting down, feeling down. and um, Just not knowing what... I didn't know what I was doing next. Like, it was... I didn't know when the golf was going to start. Obviously, we, the golf courses were shut here. Yeah. And I just felt like oh, I'm wasting away here. I'm not doing anything. I'm not on the bike. I'm not seeing pals. I'm not getting to see family. And, I mean, it hit me hard. Yeah. But I think we can all relate to that. I mean, I think we're all, everybody had a bit, a bit of that kind of feeling, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, um, that's why family is so important to me. They, I spoke to my mum about it all and, she helped me through it. What was her advice? Um, it was just keep speaking. She mm-hmm. she just said just um, if you just tell me anything you want, just speak. And she would ask me questions. Um, she asked me actually a lot of personal questions that before I would never have told her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I probably wouldn't even say it to my dad. No. To be honest with you. Yeah, there's a different relationship a, there, isn't there? Yeah. So. Again, I, I see my. I see my dad as a bit of a tough nut and he'd be like, oh, just get on with it. But <laughs> my mum's more the soft side and she yeah, yeah. she kinda So yeah, she just she understands it and she sees she sees where I was coming from and she helped me it was huge with mm-hmm. her help. Yeah. Um again, moving on to the your your time on the European tour, I mean you've been hugely successful very quickly. Um but I w- I'm just wondering when you arrived and you started playing with these, you know, famous names and faces. Did you ever look at somebody and think, "Man, I really need to get better in one particular area of the game, or I'm never going to beat this guy"? Was was there a bit of that, or were you just kind of sailing along merrily? Uh, I would just say I was just I was learning my trade, mm-hmm. uh, as how I put it. 
I was, I, I was just trying to learn my way through it and see how, what other guys do better than me, and obviously see where my game ranks with mm-hmm. with a lot of them. And one of the first guys I played with was, was Ernie, and obviously he's done so much in the game of golf, and I, I played with him I think three out of four times in South Africa, and. I took away from that. I was like, right, I can actually, I can compete with, with, with Ernie, um, just now, and he still competes in, in big golf tournaments. So, again, it was all about just getting belief, and once I get belief, and I feel comfortable in an environment, then it's, it's time. Here we go. You know. Uh, are you comfortable asking for advice? Do you do that with other players? Somebody Some- like Ernie. Some players, I mean, I'll chat away. Ernie will chat away as well. Um, I'll ask little snippets on... I'll ask little questions. I mean, Bernd Wiesberger, he, he's almost like a big brother out there. He can, I can ask him anything and he'll, he'll try and help me out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few guys out there that are willing to, to give you advice. and I mean, I don't really... I wouldn't go and straight up to them and go what would you do in this situation, what would you do in that situation, it's almost they tell you stories or they try and tell you a story of what's happened to them in the past and yeah. almost like, right, watch out for this or watch out for that and then just, you've got to, you've got to walk your own walk. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately that, that is certainly the case but the, the, I just wondered if there was anybody that you'd felt the need to, to talk to on the way up. I mean, certainly Ernie would be somebody that would be enormously experienced and would, I'm sure would be happy to sit down and talk to you about anything, really. Yeah, he would. Um, and again, if I, there's a lot of people there that if I ever needed to ask a question, um, they would, they'd sit down with me and, and chat with me about it. No problem at all. Mm. I, I, I'm suspecting, however, that uh, one of the people that you probably wouldn't want to sit down with is Kyle Stanley, uh, the you had a famous episode with him at Royal Port Russia in the Open, which I have to say enormously impressed me. The fact that that you did what you not that only that you did what you did and said what you did about him not shouting four when he should have shouted four was that you had the good sense to wait until after the round to have it out with him yeah. rather than yeah. upset him and upset yourself while you were out there. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. What, what did you take away from that? Um, I don't know. I mean. Sitting back looking at it now, I don't know if I would do it again. Um, but again, I was brought up to respect the game and the etiquette of the game. And I mean, when you become a professional golfer, it doesn't even matter being a professional golfer. Being a golfer, if, if I hit a shot that's heading in, heading in someone's direction, then I'm going to shout four. So I said it to them as politely as I could. And <laughs> It didn't. It didn't end up well. But I'll say one thing. I'll say one thing now. We've had good banter back and forth on social media, oh, where I think someone on Instagram put something up, and he, I've hit one at the USPJ that's gone into the in some sort of ten. Uh, I did shout for, and he put he commented on it saying like four <laughs> on it, um, and then. I respect the guy for it because he, he actually messaged me um, after one in Cyprus, congratulating me. So, um, no, good on him. No, I think we've, I think I, I think we've put it. I think we've put it all um, 
aside now and it's I respect his golf game and, and he obviously respects mine and what's happened in the past has happened yeah the last kind of area I wanted to get into was uh, you, you played in the majors in America this year having done so well at Port Rush I think you tied for sixth um, in your first open um, what did you feel about um, golf in America or the standard of golf in America is it that much better than the European tour or what did you think when you were in the midst of it? Um, I think it, I wouldn't say it's tough. It, it's different because of the, the grasses and stuff and the style of golf. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously tougher. The best players in the world are out there. Yeah. It's as simple as that. They, they are the best players in the world. Um but that's where I want to be and that's where I believe that I should be and for me it's about I'm just learning learning my I'm still learning my trade at that level um, but I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the test in both times or the three times I played played there and I think it's it's obviously where everyone wants to be and it's where I, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm in the right tracks to get there and it's, it's probably the right place for me to play golf and it suits my style of golf I, I, I did kind of have a wee smile to myself when I saw quotes from you you know saying how happy you were that you'd made the cut at the US Open and the PGA and whatnot. and I'm thinking that's not him at all I mean that, he's not there to make the cut is that fair to say was I right to feel like that yeah you were but again I'd been struggling no one had known until last week that I'd been struggling Mentally um, and everything like that, so it was. I was putting everything in perspective that you know what well, I'm probably not coming here to fully compete for a golf tournament. I'm coming here almost just to learn um, what it's like. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't played. I mean, everyone else had played. I think they had eight weeks or seven weeks running up to the the first event I had played. So I was going in there rusty mm-hmm. and. I think I would, I would, if someone had said to me, I missed one cut out of the two majors, then I would still look at it and go, you know what, I made a cut in one of the majors out in the US when I've been struggling and I haven't played. So I think it was a, for me, it was, it was a huge, huge success being out there. Um, Kind of last couple of questions. I mean, we've done a lot of looking back in the last wee while that we've been talking uh, looking forward, um, what does the next two or three years ideally hold for Bob McIntyre? I mean, winning again a, a bigger event probably on the European Tour would be the next obvious step up. But then how how soon is it before you think I'm ready for the PGA Tour? Um, I feel like the PGA Tour will come when I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's... I'm not really looking forward to that. It's about doing my my bread and butter which is the European tour is where I'm is where I'm focusing right now and obviously I've got top 50 in my sights right yeah. now mm-hmm. and it's just about going out and preparing for a golf tournament and I'm one of them guys that just goes out there and obviously we set many goals here and there but just let's see what happens what will be will be and mm-hmm. go out there and enjoy yourself you're you're playing a sport that you love, a game that you love for a living. I mean, there's not many better things to do than that. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the top 50 is an obvious thing to, to aim for, certainly in the short term, is that I think you're 63 in the world at the moment as we speak. Um, I, I would think that one of the, the worst places in the world of golf to be is number 51 on the world ranking. You, you get, I don't think you get too much benefit from that, uh, but you're at number 50, you get into everything. Um, yeah. how, how much of a goal is that going forward? That's how it's, it's my only goal right now, um, is top 50 in the world. But again, someone's got to be 51. Mm. So <laughs> it's about not being that man at, a, at certain stages. So there's, it's about time in your run. Um, Stoddy talks about it all the time. It's, you could be 51st at the start of the year. You get in nothing. You could jump into 30th in the world at a certain point and you get nothing. So it's just about timing your run at the right times and yeah. um, hopefully I'm timing it at the right time right now. Yeah. I mean, what have you made of the European Tour since it came back? I mean, I, I must admit, as I, I look at it with a probably a, <clears throat> excuse me, a slightly different eye than, than you do as a player, but I'm, I'm, I'm a wee bit concerned that uh, hopefully the world will return to normal sooner rather than later and that the European Tour can do likewise because as much credit as they deserve for getting up and running and running tournaments and I've been to one the Scottish Open over the last few months it didn't seem like it was a lot of fun certainly from my point of view in terms of the you know the the you know the lockdown and all the the bubble and all the rest of it and but the, in terms of the money as well I mean I'm, I'm a bit concerned that they're going to be get, get back up to what was previously looked upon as normal I mean how what's the talk among the players on that sort of subject um, I don't know. I don't really. I just go and do my job, but it's not been easy. The bubbles. Mm. I mean, I voiced it before, and it, I struggled. It likes a Celtic manner was the first event I played that was bubbled yeah. like that, um, and I struggled big time. Uh, just you've got no. You're almost you're stuck, and once you arrive, you're stuck in a hotel. And there were certain events where you had a wee bit more freedom this year. Uh, especially in the US but the European tour because there's so many different nationalities and people travelling in from obviously different countries it's it was the only way they could do it was keep it tighter yeah. um, and it was just to try and stop because if, if they didn't have it tight and one person travelled in with it and they didn't catch them before they sat and had dinner with another player and at that point it's just the whole tour's got it so I think they've done a great job in getting it, getting us back playing golf, and the money will, money will. I mean, it's even although it's the prize funds are poorer, it's still, it's still not a bad living you can make from. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I understood perfectly, you know, the the con- the whole concept of the bubble that you just articulated there. I mean, to do otherwise would have been stupid, for want of a better word. But I was, yeah. but I wasn't having any fun, you know. I I was glad I was only doing it for one week. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've not, <laughs> I hadn't played a lot until the last kind of Scottish Wentworth and that, where it, where we really started playing golf tournaments, um, because I almost had to. I needed to get back to norm, somewhat normal life, and mm-hmm. luckily they were open, the bubbles were opened up slightly, where I could have my coach at the tournament. Um, so there's still things that you can you can do, and I think now with everything going on, the vaccines and stuff on the horizon, it's you're able to I think 
come some point next year, we'll be back to hopefully normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we could, as you say, the the vaccine coming. Um, the, there's a light at the end of the tunnel for all of us. Aye, hopefully, hopefully that's the the case. On that positive note, Bob, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I've enjoyed the chat. I hope you have too. And uh, best of luck for the rest of the season. Perfect. Thanks very much, John. Well, I don't know about you, but I reckon that was an excellent first-up effort from John Huggan, and more importantly, a terrific opportunity to get to know a bit better a player who seems to have an extremely bright future ahead of him. That's it for episode 32 of the show, but I hope you've taken my advice and subscribed so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. If you haven't already, head to the show notes for information and links on how to do all of that. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to your company again in two weeks' time for episode 33 of The Thing About Golf. Golf.